Hi, it's Bob from Royal Spa. Soaking in a hot tub full of Epsom salts is the absolute best way to minimize everyday aches and pains. And we know all about Epsom salts at Royal Spa. Royal Spa hot tubs are the only hot tubs on the market that can safely and effectively use Epsom salts. Made right here in Indiana, Royal Spa hot tubs are the highest quality hot tubs on the market. Visit any one of our three Indianapolis locations or visit royalspa.com. Ah, Royal Spa. You're listening to the best of Kevin and Query on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. Good morning to you, Jake Query, along with Kevin Bowen, who is down in FLA, that is Florida, not like some sort of bad statement about Los Angeles, which I love. Uh, Mark Dykton here as well. Joe Wright's going to join us at 8.30. Then at 9 o'clock, Dane Fife joins us. And at 9.45, we'll talk a little Ball State athletics. But right now, the Colts yesterday. Kevin, I wanted to ask you this because I can't be alone, even though we have gone over this before. I think it's worth repeating. The first reaction when people hear that the Colts have hired an offensive coordinator is, okay, I wonder like, if he likes to be aggressive. What's he like to call on third downs? Does he like to run the ball a lot? But we already know that Shane Steichen will be calling the plays for the Colts. So question is, what exactly is the responsibility of the offensive coordinator if it's not to call the plays? Yeah, it's great. It's a great question. Um, yeah, I think it's something that Shane Steichen, you know, hopefully can clarify for us next week when we chat with him at the combine. But you know, by and large, I think it's a lot of game plan stuff. Um, I, I'm sure there will be a lot of quarterback centric kind of one on one sessions with Jim Bob Cooter. You know, being in those meeting rooms, especially when Shane Steichen maybe has other duties you know, head coach type of roles and responsibilities. Um, But again, heavy in game planning and, you know, pass protection plans, I think would be another thing that you'd probably put on that list. You know, that is something that is really important from a Monday through, you know, Saturday sort of planning standpoint. But, um, you know, something that I've always remembered, and I know Peyton has said this, Peyton Manning has said this on, you know, various Manning cast and, you know, Jim Bob Cooter, you know, worked here in Indy for three years with Peyton and then was out in Denver for a season. So clearly, you know, he left some sort of positive impression on Peyton. You know, Peyton has said routinely that the most important job for a quarterback is to make sure your offense does not walk into a bad play. Like, you've got to identify that before the snap happens and obviously get your offense out of that bad play. Or if for some reason you can't do it based on the play clock, you make sure that bad play does not become worse. And when I think of, you know, what you want to do instill into a rookie quarterback, that would be close to the top of that list. So I do think that is something really important for Jim Bob Cooter and this entire staff to be able to get done. You know, I said it earlier in the show, Jake, you know, the stuff that I was kind of curious about with this offense coordinator hire, there were three things on my checklist. One was I did think it was important to find some previous play calling experience, even though he's not going to do that. I think it's important for Shane Steichen to have that in the building, bounce ideas off of. And if the, for some reason, you know, Shane Steichen hits a bit of a crossroads and realizes too much is on his plate, he can pass that off and you aren't doing it to a first time. Uh, play caller. Uh, two would be some young quarterback background. Now, it's not a huge young quarterback background for Jim Bob Cooter, but last year he was with Trevor Lawrence as the passing game coordinator in Jacksonville, and obviously we know what happened in year two for Lawrence. Matthew Stafford, Peyton Manning seemed to be kind of the other QBs. Third was personality, and I'm not, you know, I'm not going to act like I know Jim Bob Cooter great. Joe Wrights is going to join us here in less than an hour. I know Joe, um, Jim Bob was on his staff a little bit uh, late in uh, Jim Bob's tenure here, and, and kind of Joe's early playing career. So maybe we'll get a little bit of insight into that. But I do think it's good to have kind of a contrast in personalities because that's why I thought um, Frank Reich and Nick Sirianni had some success here. So I'm good at the hire. Again, when you're hiring an offense coordinator, Jake, that's not a play caller, you're probably limited a bit in in who you're going to attract here. But I think it makes some sense um, for this to be the move. I, I think when you look at it, you've got a head coach named Shane which was a fabulous Western. My dad's favorite movie of all time, Alan Ladd, was in that. Then you've got an assistant coaching staff of Bubba, Gus, and and now Jim Bob. When when you factor all of those in, if we're going with like a, you know, TV land, midday Western drama, 
then the next name that has to go under there would be CJ, right? Doesn't CJ sound like that's like the name of the the sharpshooting Western guy that just walked into the saloon? Mm-hmm. Yeah, AJ maybe. Uh-huh. Well, but, yeah, but yeah. CJ over Bryce, CJ over Anthony. Oh, uh, now okay. Will. Let's see what we're doing here. Will feels like a little bit of. What about Willie? Yeah, Willie Levis. That sharpshooting Willie Levis. <laughs> now, do I do we call him Jim Bob, Coach Cooter, Coot? <laughs> um, this is actually such a good scene if you don't mind me so but my um, mom and dad's first date was this movie i feel like you know what kevin there's part of me that's like what we call him boy that's i mean i I just called parks frazier parks called marcus brady mark hey uh, hey nick yeah hey hey jim hey jim bob hey Uh, it's gotta be cooter hey coot you know you could go with the ed Sorensen school of thought when i worked at channel six ed Sorensen used to be the the best at this Somebody Mr. knew. Would, somebody, somebody knew would arrive on the scene athletically that had like a, a question, you know, a last name that could go a couple of ways. Ed Sorensen would walk up, put his arm around him, and go, "Buddy, if you're at a party, how do you introduce yourself?" And that's how he'd call him. Mike Vanderjat, for example, when he first got to town, Mike Vanderjat was like, "Well, my, my last name is actually Vonderjot. V o n d e r j o t is how I pronounce it." And Ed's like, okay. And Ed called him Vonderjot forever. And everybody's like, dude, he didn't even know how to say his last name. And Ed's like, that's what he says. He calls himself Vonderjot. Okay. Uh, Luke Luke Jimenez that played basketball at Indiana, for whatever reason, everybody called him Luke Jimenez. And it was like, no, it's it's actually Luke Jimenez. So we probably should ask him, but I guess Jim Bob just, Jim Bob goes well, doesn't it? No, it's got a great ring to it. Yeah, certainly. Got a great ring to it. The last name. Yeah, I think the last time I probably touched on a little bit too much last week. <laughs> Tony says, uh, what about just JB? That's probably safe, right? Yeah, that is, just that is JB. safe there. Yeah. Uh, when he was with Detroit, again, called the plays for Jim Caldwell up there to Jim Bob Cooter. A great, I'd say a pretty good passing offense. Not too great running the football, but you know they had some nice success actually with Matthew Stafford and the Lions. A couple nine win seasons there. Matt Patricia came in, and things just did not work out from there. So that's a little background on Jim Bob Cooter. The other two names so far: tight end coach Tom Manning that was announced yesterday, and then running backs coach DeAndre Smith from earlier in the week. Jake, I thought you made a good point earlier about Tom Manning. He walks into a tight end room where you have some. I mean, some notable investments. I mean, when you draft a tight end in round three like Jelani Woods or round four like Kylan Granson, I mean, you, you, you're drafting them to be, you know, some pretty important pieces for your offense. And obviously, they're still very young in their respective careers, but I think you are waiting for a little bit more from that group. Certainly, Mo Ali Cox, we, we've kind of all been waiting for, and I don't think he took the jump that you were hoping for this past season. And then Drew Ogletree. The rookie who had a really promising training camp, who tore his ACL late in camp at Grand Park this past year. Um, you know, you have some young guys in that room, and I remember talking to Jack Doyle. I mean, he loved his one season with Tom Manning. Tom Manning was the tight ends coach here in Indy in 2018. I would say the interesting part to Tom Manning's resume, Jake. He left Indianapolis after that 2018 season. He pretty much had a college background, came to Frank Reich's staff in 2018, coached the tight ends. He left to go back to Iowa State, where he was Matt Campbell's offensive coordinator. My thought process when he did that was, okay, I mean, Matt Campbell was like the hot name in college football for a couple of off-seasons. You know, okay, if you know Urban Meyer leaves or if Jim Harbaugh leaves or if Brian Kelly leaves, like Matt Campbell's going to be the guy that takes one of those jobs. Obviously, that never happened, but you know, if you're Tom Manning, you're thinking, okay, maybe I could be the Iowa State head coach or maybe I could follow him to be the OC at one of those big, you know, colleges. Tom Manning was the OC at Iowa State for Brock Purdy. I think that's kind of an interesting element to this resume. In all likelihood, he comes here to be the tight ends coach. But this is a guy that has offensive coordinator background, quarterback background, and in Brock Purdy's case, clearly helped develop him to be ready for the NFL. I think the more people you can put on your offensive staff 
that help that that has that sort of background, Jake, I think is so beneficial because we see staff turnover on an annual basis. If you have success, you're going to have turnover. It's important to me that you have people in your building that have some versatility, particularly at quarterback, particularly an offensive coordinator, to where if all of a sudden you start having success and Coach Cooter goes somewhere else, boom, all of a sudden, can you promote a Tom Manny? Can you do some of those things? I think having that flexibility is is really key. So I do like the Tom Manning hire. Yeah, well, I like it for this fact. Jim Mersey longs for, and longs for is maybe the wrong word, has a great appreciation for the Peyton Manning era and the Peyton Manning offense, even though he didn't like Star Wars numbers. But what better thing to do than to take Peyton Manning and – of course, Tom Moore, his offensive coordinator, just combined the two into Tom Manning, right? There <laughs> we go. I can't Let's get Jeff go. Saturday. I'm going to get a I'm going to get a Manning last name to try to get closer to Bill right. Payton there. And I can tell you right now, I, I'm warning you that I'm going to call DeAndre Smith DeAndre Swift a hundred thousand times. <laughs> but but you know, yeah. at the tight end position, Kevin, I want to get back to that. I I like the Colts' tight end room and the fact that they have. I do like. The body size, you know, I mean, Moali yeah, they got Cox unique and, athletes. They do, but they're all kind of the same. They don't have, like, I think the thing that was great about Jack Doyle was he could kind of do a couple of different things. He was a blocker, but he also was, he was always a short yardage receiver that was reliable. It, it, it doesn't feel like, like I said, I had somebody say to me, look, the problem with the Colts tight end room is all their tight ends are battleships. It takes them way too long to turn around. And I think that that's a really good point about some of the limitation that they have. If if it's third and four, that's not so bad. But if you've got to get a, you know, if you need to get a guy that's going to run around, do an out, and then suddenly turn around and wait for the ball, you know. A, and again, Travis Kelsey is a unicorn. There's a reason that he is as good as he is, Kevin. Guys like that aren't just around all over the place. But most teams have at least one dynamic athletic tight end it feels like that's what the Colts need am I off base here just one of them yeah I think the Colts need to have someone that goes on the field and you aren't really tipping your hand as a blocker or as a receiver I thought that's what made Doyle so effective you know he played such high snap counts because he would go out there and he could be a very successful inline blocker or to your point on third and six he had such great timing and fundamentals that you know maybe what he lacked in athleticism compared to a Jelani Woods or a Mo Ali Cox he could make make up for in other ways and became a really reliable target uh that 2018 season when tom manning was here obviously eric ebron that was the big year for him you'll certainly have an andrew luck help but um the three hires so far that we've mentioned again all of these reported nothing official yet all on the offensive side of the ball so we still haven't gotten anything on gus bradley or bubba ventrone officially coming back, but the fact that they're hiring guys only for offense right now would lend you to think that that will be happening. Again, I expect hires to continue to trickle out this week with the NFL Combine starting next week. Uh, We mentioned it in the last segment, the franchise tag, Jake, uh, the average of the top five salaries at a player's position or 120% of the previous salary for that player. You look at the Colts free agent list this season, honestly, I don't see anybody that qualifies for that. You'd be really stretching it if you thought Chase McLaughlin uh, deserved that type of money for pretty much being a journeyman kicker until this season. McLaughlin had a really nice season. Don't want to discredit that, but I don't think you need to slap a franchise tag on him. Bobby Okereke, no. Too much money at linebacker. See, Okereke would be the one... I, I, I'm going to push back a little bit on that, Kevin. If Okereke, I don't disagree with you, but I think that that's conditional based on Shaquille Leonard's health. If all of a sudden we see that the Colts have slapped the tag on Bobby Okereke, that tells me that they know that Shaquille Leonard is still limited in terms of his health. If he's ready to go, if Leonard's 100% ready to go, I agree with you. But I think there's a question mark there. The issue with that, Jake, is we're not going to know that. Like, you have to make this decision here in the next couple of weeks. You know, you you really won't know with Leonard. He was uber optimistic late in the season when talking about his, you know, second surgery and how he feels like he's finally got it corrected and, you know, had a ton of credit to Jeff Saturday for kind of pushing him to get that second surgery and ending his 2022 season. But I, 
it's just an issue where I don't think you can afford to do that, and you won't know about Leonard. I'd rather bring back EJ Speed on a much more affordable deal. Speed played the most special team snaps of any Colt last season. Um, I just think Okereke is going to garner a, a really nice contract on the open market. The other name I think to keep in mind, particularly if Gus Bradley is brought back, is Yanni Kangakwe. And again, I don't know if you'd necessarily franchise tag Yanni Kangakwe, but this is a guy that did play 15 games and have nine and a half sacks for you. And those are not numbers that, you know, I, I think people just kind of you know, shouldn't just turn their head at. Uh, Colts defensive ends do not really produce at that level, or at least haven't in the past few years. And if Gus Bradley's brought back, he clearly views Yanni Kangakwe as a piece for his defense. If not, I think you're kind of in scramble mode to find that starting defensive end opposite Quiddy Pay. So uh, I, I think he would be just another name that I don't think will call, qualify for the franchise tag, but he would be one that I'd be thinking about. You, you know, you need Ngakwe. That we know, right? Oh, God. <laughs> Boy. I don't know if we'll in find out. In my opinion, that We'll suck. find out yeah, if the Colts uh-huh. agree. By yeah. the way, just, is it, j- just get me to 10 o'clock and then, and, and then I'm off for the rest of the week. Off to the beach, right? Is it odd? Odd is probably the wrong word. But it seems rare, does it not, that you have coaches in Shane Steichen, your head coach, Bubba Ventrone, your special teams coordinator, Jim Bob Cooter, your offensive coordinator. Um, you know, you mentioned Tom Manning, your tight ends coach, all under the age of 40 or under. That seems rare, doesn't it? Yeah, and I am. You know, what I want to see with the rest of this staff, Jake, is like, and if you hire Gus Bradley, of course, you know, he's going to be pretty old on that compared to everybody else. Um, You know, he's going to be on the older side. I do think you want to see a mix. You want to see a mix of college and NFL backgrounds because, especially on offense, the college game is infiltrating the NFL game so frequently. That's why I kind of like a little bit of the Tom Manning situation there. It's important, I think, to continue to tap into that game. But also, I do think you need to balance with some veterans on your staff. Uh, DeAndre Smith, the running backs coach, has some of that. Again, Gus Bradley would as well. I do think, and and, and I should mention, Gus is two assistants currently on the staff. Uh, Ron Myers the DB coach, Richard Smith, the linebackers coach, have both been in the league for a long, long time. So that would balance some things out. All right, Joe Wright's going to join us in a half hour, and Dane Fife at 9 o'clock. Again, it's going to be an emotional scene tonight in East Lansing. Uh, Dane Fife uh, certainly has a lot of history up there. We'll talk Hoosiers and Spartans coming up with him at 9 o'clock. All right, two of my favorite guests here coming up in the next hour. I'll be Dane Fife at 9 o'clock. IU and Michigan State. Certainly, Dane, a lot of history of both those programs. Um, he joins us, I guess, 12 hours before tip-off, 9 a.m., with the 9 p.m. tip coming tonight in East Lansing. But right now on the Payless Liquors Hotline, he is Joe Wrights, um, one of the finest athletes the state has ever produced. And you hear him on the Colts pregame show and also Colts Monday night during the season. Our first time chatting with Joe here in the offseason. Joe, thank you for the time, as always. Um, let's just begin with the hire of Shane Steichen. Your thoughts leading into the coaching search, what were you hoping to see from the Colts, and what do you like or have questions about with Shane Steichen? Yeah, well, Kevin, it's great to be on and to hear that I'm one of your favorite guests. That, uh, that makes me happy here on this wonderful fat Tuesday morning that we have. Um, but I, I, I think as we, as we go to, to coach, I'm excited. Again, I don't know him, you know, don't know him personally. I think he's got some great endorsements from some guys I have a lot of respect for. I mean, when Phillip Rivers gives you a ringing endorsement and you're able to coach him and you're four to five years younger than Phillip, I think that's awful impressive. And I actually talked to Ben Igelana, um, a name that Colts fans will remember. You know, Ben and I played together. He's actually a scout with the Eagles now. And I talked to Ben about him, and he said, you know, Shane is awesome. And he was ranting and raving. He goes, but the biggest thing, Joe, I thought Shane was like 42 or 43. You know, he's my age. He's 37. But clearly he carries himself older. And I think when I watch the press, great offensive mind and quarterback development, which obviously we're going to need in Indianapolis, I think, to a high degree of emotion. And I think that's going to be good for this ball club. And I think three, accountability. And to me, the accountability piece is probably the most important, I just think, for the Colts and to get the winning culture back that we've experienced in Indianapolis for so, so long. They need a higher degree of accountability, you know, within the locker room on a day-to-day basis. 
with players, coaches, and everybody in that building. You know, Joe, one of the things to me that was intriguing about him, and I want your thought on this, about Shane Steichen, we talked about this with Rick Venturi as well. When you look at the quarterbacks he's worked with, you know, Phillip Rivers, Justin Herbert, obviously Jalen Hurts, to me that says that that gives them, the Colts, a little bit of flexibility in this quarterback class. In other words, you're not pigeonholing yourself of we have to get quarterback X because they run the system that this guy runs. That, to me, is a pretty versatile list of quarterback skill sets, which means that there is some flexibility from Shane Steichen in terms of what he can bring out of a quarterback based on that quarterback's style as opposed to forcing them to play his style. You agree with that? A hundred percent. It's three unique, different quarterbacks that are all very good, and one's a Hall of Famer. And you have three different type of offenses. To to go to a basketball analogy, you know, Bob Knight was going to run motion offense and play man-to-man defense. And in my opinion, hard to argue that, that he's the best coach ever. But you know, he wasn't changing any of that. And there's certain NFL coaches that say this is our system. This is what we're going to do. And there's others that are going to say, we're going to be flexible. We can evolve from season to season. We can evolve from game to game. And I think that Shane is going to be one of those guys that you give me X quarterback with a skill set, we're going to build the offense around you. We're going to go in and play this game. We can evolve and be kind of a week-to-week type game planning thing. So I'm excited to see his offensive mind with the different people that he's been around to put his own twist on things. But again, the quarterback development piece is going to be the key. And whoever the Colts decide to draft in the draft coming up in a couple months, that's really going to be key because the bottom line is, you know, we've had inconsistent, you know, quarterback play really since, you know, Andrew retired. And you've got to have a guy that you can count on and build around for the future. Who that guy's going to be, I don't really know. I don't watch enough college football to have strong opinions. I think all three guys have some positives. All three guys have some negatives, so it's going to be interesting to me as this scouting process goes on, combine here in Indy next week, which is great, who the Colts have in their saddle, so to speak, when we come to the draft in late April. Again, Joe Wrights is with us here on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Joe, I want to go back to that accountability word that you used earlier. That was something that Shane Steichen mentioned a week ago today in his opening presser as maybe the biggest thing he learned from Nick Sirianni. When you think about the word accountability, how much of that is staff-to-player-driven and how much of that needs to be player-to-player-driven within the locker room? It's a combination of both, but I'm a big believer, Kevin, that Good teams can be coach-driven. Great teams have to be player-driven. And I think the leadership, the accountability in the locker room is so important. But I also am a believer that you know coaches need to bring that on a daily basis too. And whether it's coming from coach, whether it's coming from player, obviously the ideal combination is, is some of both. That's, I think, what really has uh, been lost. And that's, that's crumbled a little bit over the last couple of years. And, again, I don't know what the answer is. But I do think him talking about accountability and preaching that, and that's what he learned from Nick Sirianni. The bottom line is, the one thing I know from playing nine years and being around a bunch of guys, guys want to be coached hard. Because guys want the coaches to push them to a position they can't get on their own and take them to that next level. And everybody in the NFL wants to be the very best player they can be. And in my opinion, the easiest way to that, the most surefire way, is from tough, accountable coaching where you're really on pins and needles on a daily basis. It's not the most fun play. Believe me, it's not the most fun to have angst and anxiety in your stomach or your brain or your mind day in, day out when you walk into the building because you don't want to get ripped by the coach for not performing. But guess what? It also forces you to the very highest standard that you can be and helps you become the best player. Joe, is there a, a balance? I guess Joe Wrights is our guest on the Payless Sugars Hotline. From a player's standpoint, is there a balance of understanding that being pushed but also not allowing it to then create resentment or a pushback of, you know what, I, I, I get it, man. I'm a professional. I make a lot of money. I've done this a long time. And then just naturally tuning a guy out. And does that actually happen with guys? And that's why you see coaching changes every four or five years. Yeah, it's a hard line. It's a really fine line, but I think the best coaches are able to get through to everybody on the roster and know that you know, you're know you not going to coach everybody individually. If it's a rookie versus a 12-year veteran, that's a different story. Some guys are more highly charged emotionally than other guys. 
you understand as a coach and you really figure out how can I best maximize, you know, player A and player B's performance on a daily basis. But I do think the best coaches I've been around have been those ones that are highly accountable, but you know they're doing it from a place of love. And you know they're doing it because they generally want what's best for you, not what's best for them in their coaching career. It's kind of that transactional versus transformational coaches. And I think that's where, uh, you know, it sounds like that Shane has a lot of those qualities, you know, and obviously you hope that things uh, unfold that way over time within the Colts locker room. But I'm a big believer of that that fine line is really where you got to be as a coach. But I do think that, to your point, players don't care what you know till they know how much you care. And you have to understand and get through to players that this is out of love, this is out of good for you and for the team, and nothing that I say is personal, even though I might coach you really hard. And, and that's hard sometimes as a player. You think, well, this is kind of getting personal, but it, it's that ability and, and everybody's got to be in that same, um, that same level of trust. Everything's got to come down to you have to have that trust player to coach, coach to coach, player to player, so that you know you can take hard criticism and accountability and not get personal about it and use it to be a positive, not a negative. Joe, it was Kevin actually got this question out of this answer out of Shane Steichen at his press conference where he said that he will be Shane Steichen as the head coach, the guy that is calling plays offensively. We now know that Jim Bob Cooter is the offensive coordinator. Jim Bob, baby's back. How about that? I mean, and trust me, you think we haven't been excited to be able to say Jim Bob Cooter every day? But well, did you I, know I, him I, at all, I, Joe? I, yeah, so I was with Jim Bob for two years. He was an offensive assistant in 2010 and 11 when I was here and got to know him pretty well because he did a lot of the scout team stuff. So he'd be drawing up all the cards and get to know him. Great guy. Uh, I would say uh, really, really, really good football mind. I mean, you could tell how sharp he was. It's obvious him and Peyton had a strong connection, and there's a reason that you know Peyton Manning brought him out to Denver with him a couple years later. But I'm excited to see Jim Bob back in the fold for sure and I think he'll be a valuable asset to this offense well so I wanted you to offer some perspective Joe as a guy that's been in offensive meetings your entire career obviously tell me the role of an offensive coordinator if it's an offensive coordinator that is not calling the plays so their their responsibilities you know we on the outside think offensive coordinator that's just the guy on the sidelines with the little sheet that's covering his mouth and he's calling the plays if he's not if he doesn't have that responsibility then the other stuff that goes into it is what? And is it, from a player standpoint, is there any concern of a head coach also taking on the play-calling responsibility? So two questions for you there. Yeah, I, I don't think from a player concern there is because who are the two teams in the Super Bowl? You know, Andy Reid calls the plays and Sirianni calls the plays. So that's a pretty easy argument right there. Um, but I do think that so Jim Bob, you know, he'll be in a ton of game prep putting the game plan together and you know i don't know how it's going to work inner workings but i would imagine hey this is the the game plan that we would put in what do you like about it what do you not even on game day suggestions here's our first 10 15 call sheet and then it's up to you know shane on game day to figure out what he wants to roll with but i do think you've seen that model happen more and more in the nfl especially in the offensive side of the ball where the offensive coach is calling the plays he's the head coach and the coordinator He's there to support him in all those other different roles. But I am excited for Jim Bob. I do think he did some good things in Detroit. Again, I think his he's, he's borderline a brilliant offensive mind in terms of his memory, his recall, and, and I would imagine they'll be very collaborative in terms of what they're putting together You know, to roll out the offense Sundays at 1 o'clock. Getting three years calling the plays for Jim Bob Cooter up in Detroit. Joe writes with us here on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Joe, um, the offensive line issues last season well documented. You know, if you look at it from a starting standpoint, nobody is a free agent on the offensive line. The Colts could bring back their entire O line. If I gave you just kind of a blank slate, and you, you know, you were in charge of the O line this off season, how would you react to the personnel up front? You know, who, who would you give kind of starting spots to? And Sharpie, who would you say, all right, we need to add some competition here? How would you handle the O-line? Yeah, I mean, I would probably roll with the five guys that finished the season. I think that, you know, left tackle and right guard, you know, I think Will Fries did a nice job. I think Ryman, he's in a tougher position at left tackle. I really thought he battled. I really thought he got a lot better. Of all the five guys on the O-line, I thought that, you know, I think his arrow is really pointing up the most in terms of, you know, his career unfolding. And I think he'll continue to get better. I also think 
we do our left tackles a disservice oftentimes and leave them on an island too much and say, well, we'll just let them go battle. Well, that's all fine and dandy. So you give up a sack or a hurry in the fourth quarter and end the game. And, and we've seen that story, unfortunately, unfold here for too long. So I'm hopeful that, you know, Shane will give him some more help and make things more advantageous to build up his confidence. But I do think he's going to be a player. But I think there, there's really a lot of reasons why the offensive line struggled last year. A lot of it comes down to the lack of a running game, the lack of Jack Doyle, who I still say we, we made a mistake and not having somebody to fill his void better. He just blocks so well and does so much different things that none of our tight ends on the roster could do. That hurt our running game. But the lack of a downfield passing game. You know, we had to add no downfield passing game, so people were playing tighter and tighter and guys in the box, and there's no threat to play action throw it over your head for 50 yards. And I'm excited to hopefully bring back the deep ball this year. But the bottom line about the offensive line, I'm going to go to one of my favorite quotes uh and it's the law of the jungle you know the strength of the wolf is the pack and the strength of the pack is the wolf it doesn't matter the five guys it does because you got to have talent but it's not five guys playing as one unit and i feel like because of the differences the different combinations the lack of success we have we didn't have that pack mentality as an offensive line that some of these past colt teams have had and to me kevin that's the most important thing is to get kind of that pack mentality back with the Colts O-line. So were there guys on the line that were selfish? No, no I don't. I didn't say that, and, and I wouldn't say that. I think it's a matter of when things start going south and they start crumbling. And again, they had, what, six or seven different offensive line combinations? You just don't have that same level of trust for the guys you're with. The best offensive line I played on was the year we went to the AFC Championship game. I was at right tackle. I wasn't a great right tackle. Lance Lewis was at right guard. You know, he was a holdover. He had been cut four or five times. You know, we had Jack Newhort, we had Colin Holmes, and we had Costanzo. We weren't the five most talented guys. We weren't the best five guys. But for some reason, we came together and we had a great trust, understanding, you know, and and we just kind of played together better. And, again, offensive line is about one unit. It's not about five guys. The Colts got to get that one-unit mentality Joe, can can that be created – and this is such a, a a novice question, admittedly. But offensive line itself, can you patch things or solidify things a little bit with schematic change? Or is it the one unit in football that really is just about the camaraderie of understanding and knowing the feel of where your teammate is at all times and simply having that time to work with one another? No, it's definitely both. And schematically, you know, if you have more offensive weapons, and again, if we're able to throw the ball downfield more and just loosen up things and get some points on the board. The other thing about O-line that people don't necessarily think about, when you're behind like the Colts were 10, 15 points every game, what do you do? You go into the second half, you got to throw it every down. And then O-lines get destroyed generally by D-lines because they're pinning their ears back and they're a track stance and they're just getting after the quarterback. Those are hard games to be in. Those are not fun games to be in. So I just think overall offensive improvement will help the offensive line more than any other position group. Joe, we'll end with this, and I know you have a lot of fond sports memories um, in your career from an individual standpoint. I know this maybe wasn't the result you were hoping for, but one of my kind of early-ish memories is a, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong on these details, was it a sectional final on a Monday night at Carmel High School for you guys playing A.J. Ratliff and company, or am I I imagining things? The, the North Central girls team was in the state championship. Shout out, Jake. I know you're excited. So That's they right. moved the sectional from Saturday night to Monday night. We played at Carmel Gym. We lost. Uh, I didn't play particularly well. We actually did a good job on AJ, who was Mr. Basketball, and Tony Pasley who went to Tennessee and Wisconsin-Milwaukee. But there was some freshman named Eric Gordon who had like 20 on us. And I'm like, man, freshman really mm-hmm. hurt us. And come to find out. That guy might have been pretty good, but uh, no, we had some great teams at HSE, and you know, this time of year, right, sectional basketball is always so excited for the state. I couldn't wait to watch the draw and you know get things going, and it's uh, it'll be an exciting time here in a couple weeks with hoops in the state of Indiana, like it always is. And, and let's talk college basketball. I know you were talking about Dane Fife, who's slightly is below me in terms of your favorite guest, Kevin. Um, huge game for Indiana, and bottom line. Northwestern's in second place right now, but Purdue and Indiana are the two best teams in the Big Ten, in my opinion. Uh, I think Purdue's a a step or two ahead of IU, but 
boy, it's fun for me as a college basketball fan when the two best teams in a 14-team conference are Purdue and IU because that's what I grew up on, right? Gene Cady and Bob Knight in the you know mid-90s, the early 2000s battles that they've had. It'll be a super fun one for fans in Mackey on Saturday. I know IU's got it. Michigan State tonight will be a tough game, but you know Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you're a fan of basketball in this state. I mean, that energy is just going to be just buzzing when you get to that game Saturday at 7.30. Joe, I want to wrap with you. Joe Wrights is our guest on the Payless Sugars Hotline, and I appreciate the time this morning. And I know that what I'm about to ask you, you've gone over 10,000 times. But for the person listening that has not heard any of those previous 10,000, I have always felt that, you know, I see more and more now, Joe, people that have their 8-year-old kid in the batting cage all winter long and people that are like sending their kid out to play basketball year-round. And I understand kids enjoying sports, but there are so many players at the upper levels that benefited from playing not specified in one sport but having the versatility, the footwork, the movement, the all of it, of the versatile background of multiple sports. How did you, when you were playing at Hamilton Southeastern, getting ready to play college basketball, did you ever envision that you would be an NFL lineman and how did that transformation come about? How was it pitched to you? And how did basketball help you on the football field? Yeah, well, well great question. And for me, basketball helped immensely with the football because of the footwork. You operate in tight areas, and I played in the low post. And the combination of having the strength and the toughness that football brings helped me on the basketball court. And the combination of quick feet and movement and operating in tight spaces helped me on the football field. And I'm such a big believer in playing multiple sports if you're able to. 30 of the 32 first-round draft picks last year in the NFL played multiple sports in high school. And the bottom line is all of your studs, right, your studs that are going on to play in college in the pros, they almost always play more than one sport. Because here's the bottom line. The most important trait, the most important trait in being a great athlete is competitive greatness. That's what John Wooden talks about at the top of his pyramid it's the ability to be at your best when your best is needed. And just going out and compete. And this is the last thing I'll say. I hear all the time players and coaches, well, we played hard, we played hard. There's a big difference in playing hard and competing. And the very best athletes, they compete every single play. And that's what you get from playing more than one sport. And to your point, the specialization, or even in my opinion, just water down where you play seven AU games in a weekend. Well, we lose a game, we go to McDonald's, what time's the next game? There's no competition in that. And that's what one thing that we try to develop in our athletes and our own kids is that ability to know you got to go out and give your very best, but you got to compete day in and day out. Those are the guys that end up being, you know, your professional athletes in the future. There's a reason why Indiana All-Star here in basketball and obviously had a very accomplished career in the NFL as well. One of the finest athletes the state and individuals the state has ever produced. Joe, thanks for the time, my man. Hope the family is doing well. Enjoy the Fat Tuesday, and uh, we'll chat with you later in the offseason. Yeah, sounds great. We'd love to get back on when we get into free free agency time and draft, and uh, there's a lot of hope and excitement for this Colts franchise, and uh, I'm definitely in line with – sharing that view that the future's bright here. Joe Wright's right there. Thank you, Joe, on the Payless Liquors hotline. Dane Fife joins us in about five, eh, maybe seven minutes. The 9 o'clock hour is underway. It's 9 o'clock in Indianapolis. It's technically 9 o'clock everywhere in the Eastern Time Zone, for that matter. On a beautiful Tuesday morning, Jake Query here along with Kevin Bowen, Mark Dykton as well. 12 hours from right now, approximately, up in East Lansing. It is Indiana at 19-8 and and 10-6 and in the Big Ten, taking on the Spartans of Michigan State at 16-10. and 10. Joining us now on the Payless Sickers Hotline, a guy that knows probably more than everybody in the state combined about both programs, Dane Fife, who has coached at both places, joins us. And, Dane, I'm going to begin with this, and I somewhat apologetically, just for the circumstance in itself, and that fact, but I wanted to give you the opportunity before we even talk basketball here. Uh, look, I would assume that East Lansing and Michigan State both are places that are very dear to you. You've spent a lot of time there along with your family, um, and it's been a difficult circumstance. I think Tom Izzo has been a great leader in navigating the Michigan State community through their emotions since the shooting on the campus in East Lansing, but wanted to give you the opportunity to just kind of address that 
and what you think kind of the protocol is here in terms of this gathering again for the Michigan State family tonight? Well, it's the first game, as you guys know, since uh, at least the first men's game, men's basketball game, since the, the tragic situation happened. And look, it's it's like it's home for for my family. My daughters were raised there for for ten years. One daughter was born there. One daughter in Fort Wayne. But my daughters were raised there. Um, very familiar with the student union. Very familiar with Berkey Hall. With yeah, I used to I used to drive drop some players off there. You know, on snowy days. And it wasn't a fun drive, so I'd complain. I mean, those, those places are just so familiar. And to think that, that um, you know, evil came to, to, to my home, one of my homes uh, in East Lansing. Um, here, here's the scenario, though, because this is what Michigan State is about um, that I learned. And, and you learn this, um, Jake and Kevin. And and I'll try to be quick here, but you know, think of think of it as a small town with with a coach that's in Tom Izzo. That's the, the community has kind of taken on his work ethic. You know his his the good things about him, um, his his dedication to the community, um, and when I say family, guys, it's it's the true sense of the word there there is something that's in place when i say family and then there's something perhaps that's you know people say family that they're trying to build a family well michigan state it's in place and that emotion tonight is going to be felt by the country um when when you watch what goes on there the emotion it's going to be raw it's going to be real and it's going to be powerful. And, you know, the, the, the good news is that there's going to be a game that's played in, in every sense of the word, the word dedication. It's going to be dedicated to the people that are impacted the most, the families, the victims. It's going to be dedicated, and they're going to feel it as well. They're going to feel the amount of love and compassion for that that community and those victims and their families it's going to be there's going to be nothing more powerful than than what you're going to see tonight dane with that and and i appreciate those words I, i wanted to ask you from a you know you look at tom izzo how do you navigate i guess and maybe that's why tom izzo's in that position and not i right but i there's not a blueprint on how you navigate through trying to guide young people that are dealing with their own emotions on everything, but at the same time are also the ones that are entrusted to allow people the diversion to be able to move forward as a group. How, how do you kind of navigate, do you think, if you're Tom Izzo, working with your team on that and also understanding the task at hand? Well, he's a brilliant leader, uh, Tom Izzo is, and um, – He's not perfect, and I was I was proud of him the other day when he got up to the podium and had his stuff written out because of the way certain evil people will twist words. And I say certain, and not everybody, but um, when you get up when, like Tom Izzo does and, and speak from your heart, um, that's what people have come to know and, and people have come to, to love about him. Um, we hear it all the time. Kids, kids are resilient in sports and they really are. And I, and I know those guys, Joey Hauser, I recruited Malik Hall. I recruited, uh, AJ Hogard. I was part of his recruitment. Uh, most of those guys there in it. And, and the reason I say that is because, uh, I've communicated with them. I know what they they're, they're dealing with. I know what they've dealt with, but, when it comes to Michigan State, when it comes to the men's basketball program, they have a responsibility as well to do their job, which is three parts. It's you go to school, you play basketball, 
and you act appropriately and accordingly in your social life. Okay. Well, they have a job. They're part of one of their three jobs tonight is to play basketball to the best of their ability. And I think there's a lot at stake tonight and those guys will be ready and they'll be full of emotion, but it'll be good, positive emotion and it will push them through any ill feelings that they may have. He's Dane Fife. Um, some great perspective here on Indiana and Michigan State tonight and certainly everything that's transpired in East Lansing over the last week. Dane, I, I, before we move on maybe to the game itself and, and the Big Ten in general as we reach the final couple weeks of regular season, I do want to touch on the scene from Saturday night. You know, Obviously in this state, what Indiana and Purdue means and this Saturday, we'll see that in Mackey, certainly speaks for itself. I thought the scene Saturday night in Ann Arbor was extremely moving. I, you know, Could you share a little little bit about Michigan State and Michigan and that rivalry and, and what you witnessed, especially pregame on Saturday? Well, look, I, I guess I was surprised from the standpoint that um, I don't remember seeing any of that across the country. And I could be wrong. When things like that happen, um, I was surprised that um, there was that, that connection. Um, not that Michigan University of Michigan isn't capable of it, but I was really proud um, of that of the scene. I, I went to the um, Indiana uh, Michigan women's basketball game prior to um, that. Uh, I can't remember what day it was last week, but Michigan had a Michigan. The Michigan women had on their warm up tops. They had warm up tops. And it had, you know, it was all Michigan State with a heart on it. And I got to get my hands on one of those shirts. They were awesome. But um, I just think that the sports community, uh, which has been ripped apart by COVID and, and you know, just the, the, the goofy times we're in, this is what the sports community has always done. You know, this is particularly because I've been involved in it, this is what the basketball community has always done. They've always put barriers down. They've always come together when, when things are tough. And But I, I was I was surprised, impressed, proud of what the University of Michigan and their you know, and, and their athletes and their coaches, what they've done for Michigan State. But I think, look, I, I circle back to Tom Izzo. I mean, Tom Izzo, think about this, Jake and Kevin. When John Beeline got the job at Michigan, Tom Izzo invited John over to Michigan State to, and gave him a tour of Michigan State's new facilities, <laughs> their their <laughs> basketball facilities. And I don't know. You can come up with your rationale as to why. But nonetheless, I mean, again, it's it's not just the community that's kind of taken on Tom Izzo's personality and who he is and what he does positively, but it's really the state. And so, like, a lot of those kids, a lot of those people, they read about it all the time. They can call it phony and all that, but really what it is, it's about – taking care of one another. You know, Coach Izzo always talks about, look, I'm for the coaches. I'm for the game. And he was a big part of getting me getting the job at Fort Wayne as a 25-year-old. And this is on the heels of me turning him down uh, when he was recruiting as a player. I turned him down, him and his program, and yet he circles back and says, hey, you know, that's, that's, that was, that's all good, but I got a lot of respect for you and your family. Uh, I'm going to help you get the job at Fort Wayne. And I say all that because he's about the game. He's about people. And it's not just the Michigan State community, but it's the state. And I think really this is what, what Michigan's doing is giving back. Like, hey, man, we know you're our, you're our enemy, you're our arch enemy, but look, we're, we're going to take care of you when, when times get tough. Dane, I wanted to ask about this before we get to the game tonight, which I do want to talk about. Uh, Dane Fife joins us on the Payless Suckers Hotline. Your relationship with Izzo, I, I guess I've never necessarily pinpointed this or asked you this. 
you know, clearly you were a great player in Michigan as a high school player, but you chose Indiana. Your brother played at Michigan and not Michigan State. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, your dad was a coach. Is that where the relationship began with Izzo, just kind of being from a basketball family? Yeah, you know, I've known him since I was 12, and I think Tom Crean as well. I've known Coach Izzo since I was 12, probably maybe 10 or 11, but um, when he was just a lowly assistant. And, uh, you know, the irony of the whole thing is, you know, my dad and brother played at Michigan. And um, I grew up Michigan, University of Michigan, the Wolverines through and through. I mean, the Michigan hail to the victors, the fight song, um, was probably like, uh, you know, like uh, one of the quiet riot songs is to, is to, is to quarry, Kevin. I mean, hail to the victors fight song was, was, was my life. That's right. But, uh, Guns and roses, baby. Forever. <laughs> I've known I've known him forever. And, um, and I'm proud to say that I have, and uh, we're we're still close to to uh, we're still close uh, to this day. Dane, you surprised Michigan State slight favorite tonight, two and a half points, considering how the first matchup went. Granted, away from home, I, I'm not. Yeah, I, I'm not because the Breslin Center is so tough. It, it's such a tough place to play. It. It's not much different than Assembly Hall. Um, you know, but the students are a lot closer. That's not a jab at Indiana, but the students are they're around. There. Have you guys been to the Breslin Center? I, I have not. Those, I have not. I the Breslin Center opened in what year, Dane? I, I want to say ninety one. Yeah. So see, I, I guess I have in my one year in college. I went up there, but I, and I can never remember. Uh, was it Jenison Fieldhouse before that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I was in Breslin. Yeah. Yeah. It's. I mean, yeah. cool place, right? It is, and and probably, you know, the is zone hadn't been formed yet, so that's probably your problem, Jake. Is it didn't etch into your memory, into your subconscious, because uh, the is zone hadn't been born yet. That's right. Is that a good assessment? Yeah, I mean, it was um, <laughs> Steve. I'll tell you what, Steve Smith is etched in my memory, though. Steve Smith and Sean Resper could fill it up, Dane. Ooh, Motor City Smitty. And Resford, I used to wear the elbow pad on, on my elbow. That's right. Because of Resford. Um, so, look, it's it's uh, the Breslin Center uh, is a rough place to play uh, because they just, they're, they're so, they've got a, the Izone and the Izone, the things that they do, it makes it really hard for a coach to coach his team because every time you try to speak, um, to your team when your team's on the floor. The, the, it's like the Breslin Center's, the, the, the Izone's watching the coach. So when you try to give direction to your team, the Izone will chime in and, and just start yelling. Uh, and when you try to talk to the referees, the Izone will chime in and just start yelling. And it, it, they've got their stuff and they make it really hard for a team to play. But I'm, I'm not surprised because um, their backs are against the wall, too. I think Michigan State is in a situation where it's a must-win. Now, we can say their backs are against the law. I guess that's not necessarily true. But um, they've got to get a win here. And um, I think it's going to be a tough, tough game for the Indiana Hoosiers tonight. Dane, Jake was talking about this earlier. And again, Dane Fife with us here on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Indiana-Michigan State, uh, less than 12 hours away from tip, coming up 9 o'clock. In East Lansing, uh, you know, Michigan State under Tom Izzo, you know, common theme is, boy, they always are peaking, right, entering the tournament. And, man, their success in March with, you know, all the Final Fours, et cetera, et cetera, kind of speaks for itself. Did you guys change anything, or even you as a head coach, did you want to alter your approach late February into March at all, whether that be practice time, whether that be, I don't know, scaling guys back, ramping it up? Like, was there anything you tried to do differently from a coaching standpoint at this point of the season to get your team peak in conference tournament into the NCAAs? You know, I think I think practice time would be an obvious one. But uh, so what you, What we tried to do, and, and I'll go ahead and just kind of bypass my head coaching career because we weren't really competing for March. Uh, that's not to say, first of all, we were in a one-bid league, if we were even in a league. We weren't in a league, so we had no shot at March my first three years and then my second three we were just trying to navigate the top half of the league 
So we'll move we'll we'll move right on to Michigan State. Um, I know this, and then and then Coach Knight as well. I, I know that we'd scale back, continuing to to dial down practice time, and so that's one. But the second part would be, uh, you know, it's a reason why Coach Izzo plays such a tough schedule on the front end is because uh, one, he wants to see expose the team, expose the players to every league all the, you know, at least the power fives as much as he can. And then, um, you know, so come March, we've seen and we've got film and we've seen kind of what each league kind of plays like or at least their personnel. Um, And then uh, I would say, uh, you know, if you think of like a training camp, that first, that preseason first, December, you're getting all your getting through all your preseason, um, installing your offense, adjusting your offense. Um, your players are, you know, because of the your players, hopefully are are getting healthy. They've they've made it through the dog days, which is, you know, post Christmas, January to mid February, and now you're kind of you're thinking about March, and that's <clears throat> that's really what Michigan State talked. I mean, they. They play for March. I mean, they know that they're going to the tournament. They're talking national championships every year. And even now, even now, because our worst teams, our least talented teams, guys, when I was at Michigan State, our two least talented teams made it to the Final Four. Think about that, you know, our two least talented teams. And I'm not sure we we didn't have – I don't – well – Denzel Valentine was a first rounder, but when you think about the players we've had, our two least talented teams made to the Final Four. Um, you know, there's a lot of things you can draw from that that you don't need the most talent is would be the main one. Does this team tonight, Dane? And this is crazy to say, Dane Fife joins us on the Payless Circus Hotline. It, I do look. There's not a lot, Dane, where I look at things and think that they're real good barometers of reality, like when it comes to reading stuff you know, online and whatever else. But the bracketologies in Joe Lenardi usually is pretty dialed in on, on where mm-hmm. things stand. He's got Michigan State right now as a seven seed. That, to me, seems high just based – I don't question Tom Izzo or Michigan State this time of year, but their body of work is such that a seven seems a little high to me. Does do they still need tonight to try to cement themselves as a tournament team, or is that? Do you think that's what Tom Izzo is preaching to his guys? I, I don't. Well, that's that's a good point, Jake, and you make very few, right? Would you Thank agree you. with that, Kevin? I, listen, yeah, yeah. yeah, I think Mark. Can we clip that out, please, for show yeah. promo? Thank you, Dane, for that. Yeah. We'll we'll send you a little money for that. I can Venmo you. No, don't. Well, I could use it too. Unemployed. I'm like your uh, early years. I'm like your early years as an IU player, Dane. You, you shoot enough times, eventually one of them's got to go in, right? <laughs> <laughs> hey, Mark, clip that one out too. My wife you got it. That one. Uh, so, so Jake, I I agree that Michigan's the seven seeds a little high for, for Michigan State right now. I mean, record alone, um, you know, they're, they're eight and seven, and and I think they got Minnesota. They've got to make up and. To me, um, I, I don't. I think Coach Izzo tends to take it game by game, but I think by and large, the former players, the current players, everybody knows. Like, hey guys, they're not thinking about Tom Izzo's twenty-five, twenty-four year straight run, whatever it is, the NCAA tournament run. But they're thinking about March Madness, the tournament, um, <clears throat> and. You know, you get your little storylines with Indiana coming in, the best player in the league, one of the best players in the league, Trace Jackson Davis, uh, Indiana. Um, they they tried to be uh, physical with kind of out of their element physical with, with Michigan State when, when Michigan State played in Assembly Hall this year. Um, there's, there's little storylines, but I, I do think that um, – this this could maybe kind of knock Michigan State obviously out of a seventh seed. It could knock him into the you know the last four in. Um, 
Would you guys agree with that? If if they lose, if they win, you know, it catapults them ahead. But if they lose, it kind of knocks them kind of up into that. Here's the problem, Dane. The problem is if, if they lose, the problem for Michigan State is they're running out of opportunities to snatch really good quality wins down the stretch. Now, the Big Ten tournament changes right. that, obviously. Right. But, right. you know, they've had, I mean, losing to Notre Dame, like they've had some bad losses yeah. and they've yeah. played some good games, but they didn't necessarily, you know, they didn't beat anybody, right? I mean, right. Villanova didn't help you out in the long run. No, they've got the Kentucky win, and Kentucky's playing better. It's not a massive win yet, but Kentucky's getting up there. They're they're getting pretty good. I, th- I think the committee will look at it as a in, in the end will look at it as a as a massive win. They just never know. You never know with the, the different year in and year out what the committee looks at is really important. Um, Dane, let's end with this. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah, um, okay. That was pretty rude, Kevin. <laughs> Apologies on that. Uh, Saturday night, we, we we do have the rematch in Mackey. Uh, obviously, it was really a tale of two halves in the first one in Bloomington between Indiana and Purdue. It's a week off for Purdue. I don't know if you would view that as advantageous or not to the Boilers. Certainly, the environment will be. Um, your your thoughts at the uh, second go-around between this one? That's going to be... I got a feeling it's going to be a really ugly game, but I also have a feeling that, you know, uh, on the heels of uh, the Boilers losing, what is it, three out of four, they just pulverized Ohio State. But um, I got a feeling that uh, the Hoosiers are in for a for a uh, tumultuous week. Whether they win or lose, it's <laughs> it's going to be physically demanding. Let's put it that way, because. You got the Spartans that are angry, and you got the Boilers, plus the rivalry game that are that are really angry, <laughs> uh, and they're going to be itching to play because you, when you have a week off, that's not seven days worth of worth of practices, but it feels like it. And those guys are going to be itching to play, and they're going to be itching to to get revenge on Indiana. It's going to be a, a physically demanding week for the Hoosiers. Dane, it feels to me, uh, Trace Jackson Davis in the last, gosh, I mean, it, we'll say six weeks just to throw a, a number out there, but the stretch that he is on here in terms of his statistical versatility is almost unprecedented in the last quarter century for Indiana. But what they're not getting seemingly is consistent help for him. Now, what I mean by that is there's not one guy that you can look at at every game and say, that guy absolutely is going to help out. Sometimes it's Race Thompson. Sometimes it's Miller Cops. Sometimes it's Trey Kaufman. Jalen hood Shafino starting to develop that a little bit. But if you were game planning against Indiana, are you better off coming up with game plans on how to limit Jackson Davis? Or are you better off saying, you know what, this guy is obviously fairly unstoppable. We're just going to go ahead and... and cut off the other four snakes. Which way do you approach it? I I think you absolutely have to be committed to trying to hold Trace Jackson Davis to zero points because of the reasons you just stated, because of the in- inconsistency of the other players. And I think part of the problem is, you know, Race has been in and out of the lineup because of injuries. You've got Geronimo in and out of the lineup. Uh, and then you've got freshmen, you know, Renew. Uh, who's who's been a little or a lot less consistent than than Hood Shafino. and and you're right, Hood Shafino is coming on with the consistency part. Um, and then you've got Miller Cop. Sometimes he gets a lot of good looks. Sometimes he gets zero. And you've got Galloway. I think Galloway's still trying to find his his niche and his role uh, within the offense. Um, but but what you do have, and and you're right, is you have Trace, and his it is unprecedented. The unprecedented part to me is how often have you guys seen a player statistics, and I'm talking points and rebounding for Trace. It could be assists too, but they've gone up, and and it hasn't been just, hasn't been just by the Trace's rebounding and points averages have gone up since conference play started. To me, that's an unprecedented part. I would say it happens almost never. And I hope one of you guys go look at it, because I know Jake would love to prove me wrong on that. That's but right. I think it's almost never that a guy's 
if your minutes stay the same, I'm trying to throw in some caveats here. If your minutes stay the same, do your points and your rebounds go up? They've gone up like two and three. Not a decimal point, like a whole point. Two and three points. Two and three rebounds. It's incredible what Trace is doing. And you talk about the, the switch flicking on. I mean, that that switch is, is flicked on. I mean, it's like Jake in his 49th year uh, finally became a mature adult. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. 50th, actually. Mm-hmm. No, well, I I know. The flick, the switch flicked on, turned on in your 49th year. I think you've been mature <laughs> for about maybe a year. Though. Thanks. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Gee, 22 see, we can points. Come together. 22 and 13 for Trace Jackson Davis in Big Ten play this year, to Dane's point. Yeah, because usually, Dane, to take it a step further, your minutes usually probably, um, you know, shift a little bit. But, you know, if you looked at it from a similar standpoint, uh, I, his assist, too. I mean, that's the thing, handling those doubles yeah. and the commitment from the scouting wow. reports. It's quite impressive what Trace Jackson Davis is doing here to close out his final season in Bloomington. Dane, really thank Thank you for the time, first off, but especially those first 10 minutes. I know what East Lansing means to your family, uh, not only just professionally, but certainly from a personal standpoint. So appreciate the pers- perspective on that, and uh, enjoy the game tonight. Hey, go Irish too, KB. <laughs> there yeah, we go. big one tomorrow at North Carolina. Almost beat Virginia over the weekend, Dane. Let's go. Let's go. Let's get it. Let's go.